bullshit. You're a data-driven marketer. You are not a data-driven marketer. You're a moron. Okay. It's gone through companies, this cultural thing, this idea that marketing is a slot machine and you put a dollar in and 30 days later, you get $8 out. How do you get to a point where you don't need to buy traffic at all and you just become the preferred brand of choice? And I do this for companies and, and we see the metrics move and it's so exciting when I do that. Welcome to Add to Cart, Australia's leading e-commerce podcast that express delivers all you need to know in the fast moving world of online retail. Every week, Nathan Bush from eSuite and an e-commerce industry expert will share the news, research and insights that you need to know to keep you at the top of your game. And of course, keep your customers adding to cart. Hello and welcome to Add to Cart. My name is Nathan Bush, host of Add to Cart and director at e-commerce talent agency eSuite. Today's guest is the James Bond of marketing. Don't worry, no spoilers. You call him in when you've got a problem to solve and you need the best in the business. Mark Bartzer is, in his own words, the outsourced chief marketing officer. Before consulting, Mark led the growth for leading fashion brand Shopo back when they were a smaller fashion brand, much smaller, and has worked with clients including Catch, Menulog, and Officeworks. He's been awarded the top 50 CMOs, top 50 people in e-commerce, and he's a regular contributor to publications like Rag Trader and Inside Retail. I wanted to get Mark on today so I could pick his brains on behalf of you and for free kind of. I wanted to focus in on performance marketing because while it's not Mark's only focus, he's a well-rounded CMO, ladies and gentlemen, I know it's a point of agitation and confusion for many of you right now. Hopefully, there's a few nuggets in here which either subside your fears or help you make changes to your business. We also touch on customer lifetime value, how to use performance channels for branding, and getting yourself into the shoes of customers, like for real not into their shoes, but actually getting in touch with customers. Before I get into today's episode, I want to let you know that enrollments for eSuite's e-commerce accelerator are now open. If you're looking to get into e-com or take your career to the next level, come and join in. Classes commence March 22nd, and you can sign up at learn.esuitetalent.com.au. All right, let's get into it. Thanks to our partners, Shopify Plus and Signet, Here's our conversation with Mark Bartzer from Mark Bartzer Consulting. Mark, welcome to Add to Cart. Hey, Nathan. Good to see you again. We've been talking about having this, this conversation for a long time, and I put up on LinkedIn a call out for who I should have on the show in 2022. Your name, I think from memory, got the most votes, but then I also wow. had a couple of your clients say, don't interview him because we don't want him <laughs> giving away secrets. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. So, so, so you're my, you're my dirty stark secrets. That's right. We're here to dig your secrets out. Yeah, a, a lot of it's magic. You need some eye of newt and different things <laughs> in there. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think I have anything about secret. I think a lot of what I do is actually pretty boring. You know, it's. I mean, what a lot of what I do is about helping people with marketing maturity. I kind of say, okay, well, you're at this, and so you're not. You know, you, you're at step A. You're not ready for step Z. But how do we get you to B or C or D? Yeah. And that varies a lot from company to company, you know, like I'm working in one company whose budgeting is atrocious and so they're spending money where they shouldn't be spending money and that's, you know, that kills performance. And, you know, another company where they're, they're, they don't know how to use their own data and mm. I'm, I'm doing a pricing strategy project at the moment, which is really fun. I'd, I'd like to do more of them, trying to figure out how much we should be selling the products for. 
doing a lot of stuff around lifetime value, around customer insights and brand strategies. So it's, it's really, really diverse, but it's, it's what's right. And, and, you know, I'll often be doing multiple of those things for one given company. Yeah. And as a fly-in CMO for many, especially e-commerce brands in Australia, yeah. are there yeah. any problems that you find yourself continually solving over and over and over again? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there is. Budgeting is a really common one. Most people don't have really good discipline around budgeting and and particularly for a lot of companies is forecasting. I'll give you an example. As a company I work with, you know, they were doing their budgeting basically basically just looking at the last two weeks' sales, which is working okay for them. But then what happened is this this sale event happened in in, um, the US market in this case, which they weren't ready for. And by the time the, the event was over. That was like two weeks, and they'd missed the they'd missed it completely because they hadn't done their forecasting properly, and they probably left a couple of million dollars on the table because of that. Mm. And that, that's the sort of stuff I'm trying to prevent. Another thing is that people are really, really obsessed with just buying traffic, just buy mm. traffic, buy traffic, buy traffic, buy traffic. And look, that's, that's good; it's a way to grow. But you know, there, there's only so much traffic you can buy. You know, it just starts getting expensive and more and more pricey. And so, how do you convert that traffic? How do you how do you increase the lifetime value of your customers? How do you increase the average order value? But then how do you get to a point where you don't need to buy traffic at all and you just become the preferred brand of choice? And that's where it really starts going. And, and you know, I do this for companies and, and we see the metrics move and it's so exciting when I do that. See, now you're talking that magic. Now you're talking that mm. minute stuff. Just on the budgeting piece, quick question <laughs> on that because we are diving into performance marketing today. That's that's where our conversation is going to be around. But on the budgeting thing, obviously, COVID, we've had ups and downs and we're all over the place, especially with supply chain. How, what's your approach to forecasting in an environment like this? i got to admit, it's a nightmare at the moment. And I, I, I wish I had some magic formula for, for forecasting out of COVID. I don't. It's just a matter of being really, really adaptable. But a, a good, a good well set up budgeting process can pivot really quickly. But no, I, I wish over the last two years, because some companies I work for, I, I actually do the forecasting for them. Not not all, but a few. And um, yeah, at the moment, it's just sticking your finger in the mirror, making educated guess, particularly as we're going in and out of lockdown, which for most companies, you know, lockdown was a good thing revenue-wise. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. So there's no magic formula. It's just staying on top of it and being flexible. Yeah, I think in some cases I was looking at where, where Victoria had their big early lockdown. I was kind of, and then New South Wales going lockdown. I kind of looked for what was the impact on Victoria and then did some forecasts to project for New South Wales. But forecasting is ultimately backward-looking. Yeah, cool. All right, let's let's get into the performance mm. marketing because it is a topic that is right at the heart of many <laughs> of our listeners. We get so many questions sure. around the state of performance marketing, especially with all the changes happening and what we are seeing around the decline of ROI, for lack of a better word, on channels yeah. like Facebook and Insta. So what's your view <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the landscape of performance marketing at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start off with, I, I don't call myself a performance marketer. I mean, I certainly do a lot of performance marketing, but I think that's like saying I'm a hammer carpenter. <laughs> or you know I'm, I'm a you know it just doesn't make sense it's yeah. like you know marketing is a full discipline and, and anyone who focuses anyone i don't i don't even like the term digital marketer because it just doesn't make sense it's like you know i've got a a, a bus campaign in market at the moment and, and yeah, for I that company at that time no i mean I, I am a marketer who works with digitally led companies and usually digital is the best answer but not always and so you know i've run tv campaigns i run bus ads it's like you know whatever and marketing's a lot more than that as well. Like pricing, that's marketing. I'm working this pricing strategy project, that's marketing. But performance marketing, sorry, what was the actual question? Here? Just on that point, <laughs> do you think, because it's 
at eSuite, it's one of the most in-demand skills at the moment that we get from clients. We want someone to come in who can be in-house because we've outgrown our agency. We want someone in-house who has a performance marketing specialist. Do you think we need performance marketing specialists or should every marketer be able to, you know, work their way around performance marketing? Look, in, in, yeah, I, I know exactly. I, I talk to companies as well and they say, and they, they give you these job descriptions and say, oh, and you look at it and maybe you want someone who's a complete agency in one person. You must get those job descriptions yeah. through, surely. And you, you know that, that they're just not going to do all of them well. They're just not. And, and that's fine. In a perfect world, I think every marketer should be a full-stack marketer. I think reality, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, I do think every CMO should be a full-stack marketer, though. I think that's important because, you, you know, there's so many different levers to pull from, you know, you know, diving into the data to doing brand strategy to working with PR companies or, or in-house PR and, and then looking at, you, you know, you, you Google ads and that sort of stuff. And if, if you're a CMO of a company who doesn't understand all those levers pretty well, I would question your ability to manage them properly. Sustainability and ethics lie at the heart of everything that Australian cosmetics brand Adorn Cosmetics does. And this extends to their packaging. They've used eco-friendly packaging since 2013. But when their orders went up to the next level, they needed a sustainable solution that could keep up with them. That's when they discovered Signet's Giami Wrap Pack system. It's helped them reduce packaging costs by 54% and cut paper waste by 50%. That equates to 40,000 metres of paper saved every year. No doubt, that's something to adorn. Signet has over 5,500 packaging solutions that help leading e-commerce retailers like Adorn Cosmetics step up their packaging game. Visit signet.net.au to find out more. That's signet.net.au. As a CMO, how deep do you have to go in your knowledge, especially around things that can get pretty complicated like performance? Um, the deeper, the better. Hmm. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm strong on some things and I'm weaker on other things, but there's no major channel I don't understand. And, you know, there's some where I could work as a practitioner in, several I could work as a practitioner in. But, you know, sometimes, you know, people approach me and say, oh, you know, can you just run a Google Ads for us, Mark? And it's like, I can. Sure, <laughs> I, I can run Google Ads. But I also can introduce you to someone who can do it better than me, cheaper than me. And so I spend a lot of my time doing introductions to, to the right people. And, and it's just not, it's not just about the skill. It's about the, the culture, about, well, I mean, this is what you do for a living, right? It's about the culture fit. It's not just about, oh, this agency and this company are a fit. It's, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, yeah. it's the right culture, the right fit, the right approach, yeah, the right pricing model, all those things. Yeah. So there's still a role for specialists, but at the CMO level and those leadership levels, you've got to actually get your hands dirty and know your shit around performance marketing, about all elements of marketing. I think so, yeah. yeah. I believe so. And then well, not everyone agrees with me on that. So what is happening in the world of performance? We've obviously seen cookies come mm. in. We've seen changes in the way Facebook and Insta are returning, new channels coming through. Do you still think it's a viable channel for e-commerce businesses, especially D2C? Yeah, it is. It just requires a bit more, you know, I, th- I think we had like this, uh, I don't know, we used the term loosely, but this golden age where, you know, it was it was very easy to do. And and wh- one of the downsides to that is we have this entire cohort of, of, of marketers, people who do call themselves digital marketers who bought up 
and they only have this one very simplistic way of looking at the world. And basically they just say, if I can buy and, and if the tool reports a positive ROAS, then I have succeeded in my goals. That's it. They, they have no understanding about the, the measurement, the attribution, the broad implications, about lifetime value, about all those things. And they just say, you know, that is, so I'll, I'll give you an example. A company I was working, there's like two or three markers in that company who are those sorts of people, you know, probably mid, late twenties, bought up in digital. That's the only view of the world they have. And so their, 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 their Facebook campaign was running, this is um, probably early last year, I think it was, you know, they, they, they were getting about, you know, seven, eight to one on Facebook. So every dollar they spent making seven, eight dollars back as reported by Facebook. And so they were budgeting based on that. And then what happened, I think it was, I'm trying to remember, middle of last year, but before the whole kind of Apple thing, mm. it might have been the year before, when Facebook changed their measurement from being 28-day post-click to 7-day post-click. And this company was like, you know, slightly more expensive product, had a slightly longer buying cycle. And so they saw their numbers drop like 20 30% overnight when Facebook made this change. And, and they were freaking out saying, oh, we should spend less on Facebook. We should spend less on Facebook. It's like your customer behavior hasn't changed at all. You know, yeah. there, there's not a single person who's saying, well, I'm past the seven-day attribution window. I can't buy anymore, right? It, it doesn't work. But, but, yeah, that's how they were thinking because that's the only way they have on the world, what the tool tells them. And even prior to that, there were people buying beyond 28 days because it's the sort of product. It's, it's a luxury product and it's the sort of thing that people are just going to look at and then buy a month, two, three, six months later. And do you think that's because that ROI number, whether it's seven, eight times or more, has become so entrenched in businesses beyond the marketing team into CFOs and all sorts of throughout the business that any change in that spells panic stations? That's exactly it. Yeah, I think so. So there's two problems here. One, one is that people value accuracy over reliability. So these tools can tell you, you know, you've got a 7.28 times return. It's not a reliable number, but they can very accurately report the wrong thing. Yeah. So, and, and people like that, they're seduced by accuracy. Whereas I could get you another tool, like I had a meeting this morning with a company and we figured out using other tools and other approaches, that the approach was like, you know, returning seven to 900%. It's not as accurate or precise, but it's very reliable. And I can tell you absolutely guaranteed, this is not returning less than 700%. Yeah. But, you know, competing against something, you know, that's doing 623.5%, it doesn't look as good. Yes. So, so that's one. And then the other one is that's, it's, as, as you said, with CFOs, it's kind of, it's gone through companies, this cultural thing, this, this idea that marketing is a slot machine and you put a dollar in and 30 days later, you get $8 out. If that's what you don't want to do as a living, that's, that's not what marketing is. It's a nice idea, isn't it? Sure. And, and, and to some extent, it did work for a few years. But, but those days, you know, even, even two, three years ago, we're at a heyday of this. It was kind of somewhat working. Yeah. But it's, it's even then it was imperfect and it's just becoming less and less perfect as well with, with cookies dying and, you know, the measurement problems. And it's going to be an interesting time for a lot of companies. So what's your approach to measuring performance marketing? Because I'm so interested from a bunch of levels here around where you're drawing the data from, because you mentioned there mm. around reported by Facebook, the tools yes. that you're using and the metrics that you're looking at. Is ROAS still a thing? So there's a lot of questions bundled up in there. Let's start with what metrics are you looking at to report return from performance? Yeah, okay. I'm going to answer your question indirectly. So what, what, what I get asked a lot is people say, what attribution model should I use, Mark? Yes. 
And it's like, hang on, that's, it's not even the right question. It's like marketing as a discipline has been around for, let's say, 100 years, give or take, depending on when you define the start of it. And attribution as a discipline has been around for 10 or 15 years. So there was like 80 or 90 years of marketing with no attribution. And we're kind of, and look, they were doing okay for themselves. You know, pretty much every big global household name we know was built prior to attribution. Yeah. And so it's like this whole suite of tools. And, you know, we've got media mix modeling is coming back into vogue at the moment, mostly because of the death of cookies. And if you talk to anyone at Facebook, they'll kind of, you know, it's pretty hard to have a conversation with them about mentioning media mix modeling. It can be expensive. It can be hard to do. But, but there's like regression analysis, which is quite cheap and easy to do. And that's kind of like a poor man's media mix modeling. And it's very, very reliable. Tell us about regression modeling. What, what is that? Basically, what it does is it, is it looks at inputs and outputs. Um, I'm, I'm not a statistician, but there's kind of, you know, um, independent variables, independent variables. And that's, that's about as deep as my statistical knowledge goes at that point. <clears throat> I've, I've got some um, statisticians I work with on this stuff. And basically, they say, okay, this is how much we spend on Google. This is how much we spend on Facebook. And in almost every company, that's fluctuated for a variety of reasons. And then this is what our revenue is. And it basically says, what is the statistical correlation between your Facebook spend and your Google spend and your revenue? And that will come back with a reasonably accurate number. Okay. Now, the downside to regression is it doesn't look at what we did last week or it doesn't look at what this one specific campaign does. So you still do need to use the tools to figure out how to optimize day to day. But for you, and, and that's fine, but for you, Big picture stuff. How are we assigning budgets? How are we growing the company to two, three hundred percent? It's the stuff I mostly work on. Mm. Then regression is a really cool tool. So you're still interested in trying to get a return number based on channel. You're not kind of, I felt we, we were getting to a point at the end of last year where there was a lot of people going, actually, this whole attribution thing, it's too hard. Let's just throw the whole marketing spend in and get a marketing ROI rather than by channel. You're still going after by channel. Uh, yeah, it is. That, that, that's not the worst approach, what you're describing. So some companies work towards a MER, management expense ratio. Look, it's, it's not a horrible way of working. There's downsides to it. But, but the, 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 the people on the tools, the people actually in Facebook and Google every day will still be looking and should still be looking at that unless there's some cases where they've been expl- expressly instructed not to. So I'll give you an example of a campaign I ran. So it was for, for running this campaign for a client. Um, I had a sale event on. And so I just kind of, uh, fortunately, a lot of people I work with tend to indulge my crazy whims, <laughs> which um, makes my job more fun. And so what I did is let's say, okay, let, let's just go in one state and let's run a, a YouTube campaign promoting this sale. And, and it's chatted with, like, you know, the media buyers, and they were saying, oh, yes, yes, we can do that and remarket audiences. Like, no, 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 no. Let's do it on a complete reach basis, demographic targeting only, no audiences, no remarketing. In fact, I'm trying to remember, we might have even excluded our existing audience. I don't remember for sure. But it was like a really, really broad reach. It was just like women 30 to 50 in one state. That was it. The benefit there is you get really cheap CPM, so you can reach a lot of people really, really, really cheap. And just ran this campaign for like, I think it was five days or something. It was was like a, a sale event. And looked at YouTube afterwards, and I think we spent like five or ten grand on it. And YouTube reported like a fifty percent ROAS. So for every dollar we made, we'd made fifty cents back. Great way to go out of business, right? <laughs> and it's like, 
let's just just hold on a second. Let's just hold on here. And so then what we did is we looked at the revenue in that state compared to every other state and used them as a control group and nothing special is happening in the state. There's no lockdowns going on at that particular point in time, that golden area where we were kind of locked down free for a few months. And um, what happened is that state actually declined significantly more. And at that point, we're at about a 300% ROAS. Not profitable, but interesting. Interesting. Yeah. 300% is like, that's interesting, right? Yeah. And then we turned off the campaign, and I rerun the data, and the revenue stayed up in that state. Ah. And at that point, it, it, it tapered off after a while. Hmm. It didn't stay up forever, but it, it stayed up in that state. And at that point, we had like a five or 600% ROAS. Mm. And that point, it's basically break even at that point. Yeah, this company's targeting about eight hundred percent, so six hundred percent. It's break even. Yeah, and that the, the creative wasn't particularly strong, and there's a lot of things we could have done better. And so that that was a really interesting campaign, and I, I do that sort of thing for a lot of companies. So it's really interesting what you said there because you're essentially using what is typically regarded as a performance marketing channel, but using it as an awareness and brand play. Yeah, that was performance metrics still. Yeah. It still performed a near, uh, uh, you know, a, a break-even ROAS. Yeah, okay. And, and there's other ways to structure it. That was a very tactical one. There's another company I did a very similar campaign with, but we've been running it for three months, and we've been running it in one region, and it's a, it's a, a, it's a naturally seasonal product. And at this point, every right, right now, we just looked at the data a few days ago, every region that this company's targeting is in decline except one which is actually hitting record sales levels. Wow. Okay. And we dropped like five or 10 grand. Yeah. And do you always split geographically to do these tests? Sometimes. It depends on the test, but that is one of the tricks. But again, you know, you, I think it wasn't the question, something, what do you look at apart from how do you measure marketing? And that is one of the ways of looking mm. at it. And, and there's lots of different ways. Yeah, okay. So, so regressions one, geotargeting is another. Mm. And when you're looking at these numbers, what sources do you trust? Are you trusting the platforms and their metrics or are you bringing all those numbers into somewhere else? Look, yes and no. Okay, can we go on a tangent here, Nathan? Yes, we can. I love tangents. <laughs> good, good, good. I like your tangent as well. So, so okay, tangent. Let's go on a tangent here. Um, one of the buzzwords in the industry is we're data-driven, Right. <laughs> We're data-driven marketers. Um, we're, we're, do we swear on this podcast? Yes, we do. We do. Bring it on. Bullshit, you're a data-driven marketer. You are not a data-driven marketer. You're a moron. Okay? Thank you for Speak our um, intro yeah. grab there as well. We're going to take that little clip, <laughs> and that will, that will bring so many people into this episode because they're like, what, what is Mark blowing up about? This is fantastic. Oh, yeah. All right, bullshit, okay. you're a data-driven marketer. Yeah, yeah. So the reason you're not a data-driven marketer, you're probably not, but of course there are data-driven marketers out there. So... The number of companies I look at, because, you know, so I, I work with clients on a long-term basis, but I do projects as well. The number of companies I look at where pretty much the first thing I do is I do basic data quality checks. And these are companies and their data is a disaster. And they are making daily marketing decisions on this. Did a project with a company not long ago, several months ago. Big company, you've heard of them. Spending, what are they doing? Half a million a month on Facebook, something like that. So good size spend. Double tracking. We can do charades if you want, if you want to help me um, guess it. (laughs) (laughs) Starts with. Sorry, carry on. No, no. If you knew the company was doing charades, this would be really, really funny. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And um, 
yeah, and, and, and you know, half a million. So like, but I don't care who you are. It's a lot of money, right? Yeah. They were double tracking the, the results and they were making daily decisions based on this data that was twice as good as it should have been. How is that happening? It's, it's common. That's the thing. That's, this is not an, an anomaly. I'd say probably one in three companies I look at have something similar to that. Like, I'm, I'm not talking little, oh, this pixel's not quite implemented. I'm talking major, major things, you know, things, you know, I'm calling anything that's affecting your data more than 30%, I'm calling major. Yeah. Probably if we look at that definition, maybe half the companies I look at. Wow. Yeah. So let's start off with that. So you're not data-driven if you don't care about data quality, mm. right? And almost everyone I talk to doesn't care about data quality. Even I'll give you, okay, here's a tip for your, your listeners, a really basic one. And this, I don't even call this a data quality problem. This is just a routine thing. I'm not sure I want to endorse this one, but here goes. COVID-19 sparked a huge demand for homewares. I'm very aware of this, but it's not a user experience that is easy to get right. Sarah, my wife, seems to have no trouble. That's why Crate and Barrel Singapore replatformed over to Shopify Plus with Shopify Pause to deliver a seamless customer experience. They upgraded to enable virtual consultations, real-time inventory, and ERP integration. The result for Crate and Barrel? A 350% increase in loyalty signups and an experience ready for expansion through Southeast Asia. But seriously, let's just keep this one on the lowdown, hey? To read more of Crate and Barrel Singapore's story and see other case studies, visit the customer section on shopify.com.au forward slash plus. When people, you know, half the companies these, these days are running on Shopify, they start their Google ads and they implement it so that because it's easy to do, they use Google Analytics for tracking, but Google Analytics tracks differently than Google Ads does. And so you're actually getting a lot less data and even quality aside, Google ads will give you a higher volume of data, which allows Google algorithm to optimize better. Okay. Let's, let's figure out how you're measuring and how you're tracking just from a pure algorithmic optimization perspective, you're better off using the Google ads pixel than the Google analytics pixel, but it takes an extra half hour to do. Kind of makes sense too, because you're paying for Google ads, aren't you? Whereas Google analytics, why would they give it to you for free? It's just easy to implement. That's all. Mm. Okay. In, in Shopify, when if you just follow the dotted line in Shopify, you end up doing it that way. Yeah. So there's one thing, and then even if your data is accurate, most people don't understand the data. I mean, I, I was interviewing for like a, a very senior, like head of performance for for a big company a while ago, and one of the questions, you know, we had pretty open budget. It was like we just wanted the best, right? That was it. We just wanted the best. Whatever they charge doesn't matter. We wanted the best person. <clears throat> And one of the questions I asked them, and, and these they were mostly um, agency people, multi-million dollar budgets routinely, you know, they're managing for clients, and I asked them what's the difference between post-click and last-click attribution. None of them got it. Not one. Oh. Yeah. I definitely <laughs> echo your your sentiments, and, and I've seen this as well, not as, not as often or, or as much as you have, but I feel it comes from no one having an ownership of, the data as well is that you might have had Probably. a bunch of e-commerce coordinators or managers coming through, even marketing people, yeah. putting pixels around, setting things up, but there's no documentation. Yeah. There's no understanding of exactly how it's all pulled together. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's often the case. But you can't call yourself a data-driven marketer yeah. if you haven't confirmed your data quality 
and if you don't understand what data means. If you can't tell the difference between last click and post click, then you don't understand your data and you're not a data-driven marketer. Yeah. So d- data-driven marketer, what's the ultimate source of truth for them in a marketing sense? I don't think there is a single source of truth. I think that's a bit of a myth. Like that, that, that conversation I had this morning with um, someone where we were going through and, and looking at regression data, you know, so we have a follow-up meeting on Friday, I think it is, where we're actually aggregating data from as many sources as possible. So we're looking at, you know, what's Google Analytics saying our performance is, what, what's the tool saying our performance, what's the regression saying our performance is. What, what do we know just from our experience, having run this business for a few years and seeing the ups and downs of it? And I'm going to sit down with the head of marketing there and just have a discussion and we're, we're going to make a call. But as I, I said to her this morning, it's like, you know, a, a lot of marketing is sticking your finger in the air and making guessings. And that's what we're going to do. That's going to be a really, really well-informed, well-educated guess. Yeah. And that, that's the difference. I feel a lot of people try and set up marketing data, especially to try and save them from thinking but it should really just enhance the thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other thing is people, you know, why do you make that decision? It's like, oh, that's what the data said. But data didn't tell you that. <laughs> yes. It's data is just so widely, vastly open to interpretation. You know, the, the last call I was on like an hour and a half ago, chatting with um, a CEO of a company and you're saying, you know, we're talking about discount strategy and we're saying, you know, okay, if, if, if we do a 15% discount, we make no money on it, margin's gone. So that's true. It is, It is. you know, you're, you're making you know, pennies at that point. And I said, but with this particular discount strategy and, and showed them their own data, these customers have a lifetime value that's between double and triple your regular customers. And so if you're prepared to take a six or 12 month view of things, you're actually going to make far, far more money. Mm-hmm. They're both data-driven decisions. Yeah, you know, it, it, it is was a data driven decision, and, and you know, and that, that's a, that's a better business judgment at that point. You know, let's forget about this data driven bullshit. Let's forget about what's right for the business. Do, I mean, for some companies, you need to make your money back in within a month, and that's fine. That's not a bad call. But you know, in this case, he's prepared to make a six to twelve month kind of call, and so we're having ongoing discussions on that one. Nice. And so we're diving down another rabbit hole here around <laughs> <laughs> lifetime value. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it means so many different things to different people, especially when you start trying to put a time frame around what is a lifetime of a customer. How do you approach calculating lifetime value? Yeah, so I, 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 it, it's, it's hard to do. I mean, to start off with, most companies I look at don't even look at lifetime value, which for some industries is fine. Like, you know, I, I've got one, one, um, company I work with who the product it's really by and large 80% of their customers are one and done and, and for that category it makes sense and we, we have made a conscious specific informed decision to ignore lifetime value as a metric as a company okay but the other one I just saw the phone with it's 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 um I've seen with a few hours ago it's a very lifetime value driven company it's a product which naturally replenishes and kind of you know has a natural lifetime value to it yeah, so you get into cohort analysis at that point. How many people from a particular cohort repurchased after a particular time? And the longer the better, but we're fast moving businesses. We can't look at three year lifetime value. It's just not realistic. So normally looking three, six, maybe 12 months if we're lucky. Yeah. Looking at that, but the most important thing is to segment it as well. Mm. So if you're saying, okay, we've got, you know, uh, lifetime value is, you know, we're making, you know, 100 bucks off a first purchase and after 12 months, most of those customers have spent 170 bucks. It's like what you'll find in particular about numbers is 
80% of the customers have made one purchase and 80% of the customers have made 20 purchases. And it's trying to figure out who was which and how do you target them and how do you, that, that's where the, the smarts come in, the strategies come in. You know, how do you get the, the, the one and done to make a repurchase if you can? And how do you find more of those 10 purchase customers? And then segmenting to figure out who those 10 purchase customers are. Yeah, it's an interesting one because we had um, James from Particular Audience come on a couple oh, of weeks yeah. ago. I think I've met him, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. And like we had a great chat, especially around this topic. And his view was that customer cohorts are dead and that for him, getting like-minded customers together was an activity that kind of wasn't worth itself because, and I'm putting words in his mouth, obviously, Hmm. his preference and what he's selling is that we should be going on product journeys and product intent because that will tell us the next likely step better than a cohort will. Yeah, and from memory, particular audience, like visual merchandising and stuff like yeah. that, right? Yeah, yeah, visual merchandising search, all that Yeah, stuff. I've had a quick look of it. Yeah, yeah, one of those products, yeah. I've had a quick look of that category. And, and from his perspective, that makes sense. But when you're looking at acquisition and like CRM strategies, then look, in a perfect world, yeah, but, but the data maturity required to do that is in some cases just simply not possible, the data is not simply not available. Or in other cases, it's beyond the scope of anything less than a billion dollar company. Yeah. So, so, but, but from an on-site merchandising perspective, he's probably right. And he knows more about that stuff than I do. So I, I don't think it's neither or. No, no, no. I don't think so either. I think it's just interesting that we've, the death of the cookie, I think the death of the cookie has not so much, it's, it's probably been overblown, but I love that it's opened up new ways of thinking about things that have been seen as gospel for so long. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know. In some ways, I'm kind of excited by it, to be honest. I think it's, it's, it's going to shake out a lot of um, amateurs and a lot of people who've had very poor practice whenever Chrome does the final death knell, whenever it's like mid next year. I can't even remember the date. Yeah, it got moved, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's sometime 2023. Hmm. And then, you know, Chrome just, just oh, good, sorry, not Chrome, Google just this week changed. The, they dropped Flock and replaced with their new, what's it called? I can't even remember what it's called. It wasn't bird themed. Have you noticed all the cookie replacement tools are bird themed? <laughs> Go- Google it. it, it almost you know why? You know why? Because they just fly in and shit on you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, yeah. let's let's put our broader marketing hat on. And um, what are you yeah. seeing out there? What's what's really exciting you in marketing at the moment? Any any new platforms, tools, executions? Yeah. Um. I don't know platforms. So uh, like. Talking, so I'm not, not obsessed with this, but just getting back to LTV, I'm, I'm working with a, a startup in, in New York who do like amazing LTV work. Like, and, and, you know, it's basically, you know, in a perfect world, you have a you know, team of data analysts and data scientists and a data warehouse, but most companies don't, can't afford that. And even if you can afford it, it takes, you know, six, 12 months to get that useful. And, and so this is kind of like the, 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 the poor man's data warehouse um, and, and gives you, you know, all those questions I was talking about was from this product. Cool. And, and, and so that that's really cool. That's really exciting. Um, what else is happening out there? I don't know. There's, there's so much work and so, so much stuff happening in the cookie replacement world. I'll put I'll put um, a I'll, I'll put a scenario to you. Assume you are yeah, yeah. an up and coming young women's fashion brand. <laughs> I won't name any names. Would you be starting a TikTok channel right now, or do you think it's flown? No, I reckon it is. So I, I think. TikTok is overhyped, but doesn't mean it's not a good channel. I, I just saw some data just a few days ago 
that said amongst the over 18 audiences, TikTok is reaching 37% of people, wow. whereas YouTube's reaching 89% of people. So if you're looking for broad reach, YouTube is still far and away superior just to, to reach as many people as possible. But if you're aiming at 20-year-old women, I would imagine those, I don't have the data, but I would imagine those numbers would be pretty neck and neck at that point. Mm. And um, I feel like that audience is still, and from what I've seen, the research I've seen, is still visiting Facebook but not necessarily engaging. So you're still getting the numbers from some of the eyeballs, but it's just a check-in, what's going on, I'm out again, almost like, yeah. Could be, potentially. But but then again, this, this, is, this is another marketing bugbear of mine that um, so many marketers think that they are the customer mm. and they're not. You know, but rule number one of marketing, the second you join the company, you cease to be the customer. Yeah. But even then, I work on one kind of younger women's fashion brands client, and they're still driving significant revenue, like you're talking double-digit percent from Facebook. And and yet you go around you go around the office and talk to, you know, it's it's a fashion company that's like filled with 20-something girls in the offices that they all are. Yeah. And you go and ask them and say, how many of you are on Facebook? And they'll all say, we're not. Mm. It's it's all Insta or even TikTok, even Instagram. But um, yeah, but, but the data is quite clear. Facebook's still a dominant player. Yeah, right. And it's probably um, only in the last year or two in that market that Instagram took over from Facebook. Mm. Um, and TikTok's still a long way behind. So I'm, I'm not saying for a second because you've got to build up your, your maturity and your following and, and there's a great audience there. But just don't assume that you are the, the audience. Such a great tip because even if you are 100% fit the cohort and you fit the brand, as soon as you're within an organization, your viewpoint changes on that world. It all all of a sudden becomes you're the center of it and that you think customers care all about you when really you're a passing, you know, a passing scroll for most customers. You're not the center center of their lives. What are some of the tips or the tactics that you've got? for marketers to put themselves back into the real shoes of customers? Oh, that's a good question, man. Okay, so uh, one, I've been going on this this for years and years and years and it still hasn't stuck, so I'm going to keep going on it, (laughs) is talk to customers. And You're crazy. I I know, isn't it radical? (laughs) But I I remember I was speaking on a panel at a conference like uh, two years ago and one of the other guys on the, the, the panel was like, uh, country manager, I won't say who, but a, a large, well-known data company. And I was talking about this. I said, you know, talk to your customers. And and he was going, I think he was the sponsor of the panel, actually. And um, he said, oh, yes, you know, through our data platform, we enable data-driven conversations with customers. It's like, okay, I'm going to say it again. Bullshit. There's no such thing as a data-driven conversation with a customer. Look, look at your own personal experience. When have you had a data-driven conversation with a company? It doesn't happen. It's not real. And I said, no, actually, hi, I'm Mark. Pleased to meet you. What's your name? Great. And look, there's, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean being literal like that, but one of the basic things I do for companies is, oh, okay, I'll give you an example. So a company I work for, they have free shipping and free returns, right? And, and in, in, in their space, in their niche, that's quite unusual. So that's a unique value proposition. And so what I did is there's, there's a process called remote unmoderated user testing, where you actually set a bunch of questions. People record themselves while using the website answering these questions. So you say, hey, find a product you'd like, you know, go add it to your cart and go go do this. And then, you know, go and, and you know, set a bunch of tasks and they do it yeah, 10, 15 minutes usually. <laughs> and I, I got five customers to do this. 
And I think three of them got to check out. So they, they found a product they liked, they added it to cart, they got to check out. And, you know, at the checkout, you're always kind of eyeing off what's for but shipping price. And then it said free shipping. And, and three or five said, oh, wow, free shipping. That's so good. But they should know that before they get to cart, right? That's obviously going to increase their chances of adding to cart. Otherwise, it's just a bonus, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and so what happened is, is like I, I was watching these. I, I still remember it was like a Friday lunchtime. I, I immediately went and went to the A-B testing tool. Within an hour, I'd set up an A-B test to promote. And, but they, they said free shipping on their site. It just wasn't clear enough and people weren't noticing it. Hmm. I just went and added this tag that said free shipping, free returns underneath the add to cart button. Remember, that's an A-B test. Um, revenue was up 10%. Went and changed the wording a bit to I think it was free return, free shipping and risk free returns or something. I can't remember. What it, I did an ABC test. That's right. I did mm. like a few different copy changes. Revenue was up another ten percent. So we got an incremental twenty percent in conversion rate with zero extra media spend, based on me spending an hour and a half watching videos of customers. Yeah. Now tell me, tools, we're talking like twenty bucks a month kind of tools, aren't we? Ah, uh, you, you normally pay per head. Yeah. So I think that tool I was using was 20 bucks a head. So it cost us like 100 bucks to do yeah. that. Perfect. And um, this is a company doing you know, tens of millions a year. And so they just added another you know, two, three million a year in, in revenue and opened up new channels. So it's, it's, it's great. And, and that's, I, I can give you like a dozen stories like that. Yeah. And it's so good too, because a lot of times, take your free shipping example, you might go, I don't think people are seeing our free shipping. And you say it to the team, and the team are like, yeah, it's right there. Like, it's there. It doesn't exactly. mean people it's see exactly it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just because you put it there, you know, the problem is not communicated until the customer's seen it. Yes. yes. And I have that all the time, but people say, but it's there. It's on our site. It's like, I don't care. If they don't see it, it doesn't exist. Exactly. Just on that, on that talking to customers as well. I love, mm. I love that idea around AB testing, key messages, key paths, mm. but just talking to customers. And I think I've said this before on the podcast, but it's as simple as what we've done with some of the clients that I've worked with is go every month. I'll give you a report of your top three purchases. Just ring those people who purchased mm. those items and just say thank you. And you never know what they're going to say. And it just has that connection straight up and you get that kind of intel on your customer so quickly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's that's an awesome thing to do. Yeah, and easy to do. It's like that free shipping add to cart example I just gave. Most people when they're doing A-B testing, they just poke around Google Analytics, right? Tell me where you find that report in Google Analytics that people mm. aren't noticing free shipping. Mm. It ain't there. And I'll tell you what, because I, I, I do a lot of A-B testing, a lot of CRO, I'm obsessed with it, just because most companies just don't do enough of it. And while I mostly do strategy, that's one thing I kind of do tend to get a little bit hands-on with. And... um. I'd say probably eight out of the 10 biggest wins I get are based on user testing, not analytics yeah. data. I, I do. Yeah, I look at analytics. Absolutely, I do. But it's a minority. Oh, and I tell you what, there is no worse feeling in the world than watching users use your site that you've developed and you've built and you've spent all this money and time on mm-hmm. and they go, the free shipping button is just there. It's there. It's there. Click it. And getting so yeah. frustrated and go, I shouldn't be frustrated with the customer. I should be frustrated myself. Yeah, um, yeah. But there's a visceral kind of response to it. And I think it works really well as a team, especially when you're trying to show other people that the customer's mm. having a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've had kind of a diverse career. I've worked in lots of different fields and I worked as a US person briefly years ago. And, and I would I would sit, you know, back in old school, you'd literally sit next to the user and, and give them instructions and talk with them and get them to interact with the sign. And the number of times where people are just like, 
scrolling right past the thing you're meant to be clicking and you're just sitting there trying to keep a straight poker face and you just like went away it's right there it's right there but that's my problem to solve yeah my, my favorite saying of all time is don't make our problem the customer's problem mm. it's not the customer's problem to solve it is our problem to solve and if they can't find the button if they don't know we've got free shipping that is my problem it's not the customer's problem you know what i think you should say in those situations <laughs> bullshit you're customer centric so you can oh, absolutely for data or customers you can interchange it if people yeah no no i do say that no if, if people <laughs> People say they're customer centric, and then you ask questions. Oh, how many customers have you spoken to recently? Oh, no, no. So, what, what do you mean by customer centric? It's like, oh, I just think about what the customer would like. It's like, and how do you know what the customer would like? Oh, I think they're probably the same as me. It's like they're not. They really, really aren't. I promise you. Yeah, they're just know. not. So when, when I did, I, I did um, some like advanced marketing studies a few years ago, and literally the first slide in the first lecture was, "You are not the customer." Hmm. Did it hit home? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I knew that. That kind of just reassured me that I was on the right course. Yeah, beautiful. Now, last question I've got for you because we better let you go. Last yeah, yeah. question. We all need to know this. <laughs> no. Should we be bidding on brand terms? Oh, man. <laughs> that old See, chestnut. A lot of what I do for a living, I, I sometimes feel guilty taking money off people. Not that guilty. I still take it. But um, a lot of what I do is I just test things. I guess the thing is I know what to test. That's probably the trick. And, and, and so I say just test it. But having said that, I've run that test a number of times and I don't recollect ever losing, as in turning off has always been a good thing. As in, sorry, as in keeping them on is the way to go or turning them off? No, turning them off. Turning them off. Yeah, usually. Look, there's lots of reasons. If you can get it cheap enough, mm. my general rule of thumb is because I, I do a lot of um, international ent- uh, market entry as well. And so, you know, so typically a country, company that's done well in Australia wants to enter US or, you know, Singapore or something. So, so typically I recommend leading on in those markets because it's a trust, I, I believe, and I have no data to back this up, that's a trust element. That, that you know, because when you enter a new market, one of the biggest issues is trust. And so by having a, a paid ad there, I believe that's a trust element. I have no data to back me up on that. And it's usually, you know, you're looking at 500 bucks a month or something in a new yeah. market. So it's not a big deal. Yeah. Mark, we better let you go. But before we do, what's next for you and some of the projects you're working on? Oh, I don't know. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, it's lots of fun. Everyone keeps saying, oh, you're going to hire someone because I've got plenty of work on. But it's like I, I, I like what I'm doing. I, I like taking on the sort of challenges that pe- other people can't do and so that I can't hire someone to do. And if I start doing boring routine work, then I'll probably stop what I'm doing at that point. Love it. Um, And if people are interested in putting a challenge to you, what's the best way to get in touch? Oh, probably LinkedIn. I spend a lot of time there. I assume the spelling of my name is in um, the the, the show notes, so Mark Barza. Or or if you particularly want, you can email me, mark at markbarza.com. Beautiful. Mark, thank you for coming on Adicart and spilling some of your secrets. We didn't even get to branding and all the other things that you do. Oh, man. That's a conversation hopefully for another time, but we appreciate your thoughts on performance marketing and lifetime customer value. Cool. Thank you, Nathan. When Mark and I were throwing around the idea of having a chat together, performance marketing was just one of a handful of topics we were considering. All of them would have been good, and it really goes to show the depth of knowledge that Mark has. And not just that, I love that he doesn't always stick to the conventional lines that are always trodden out, especially in marketing, and he caught me off guard a couple of times in there, which I actually really enjoyed. 
Here are the top three takeaways that stood out for me. Number one, A-B testing rules. Mark spoke about how data and data quality is important, but actually watching users complete tasks on your site gives you insights that you would never get from analytics alone. I've used tools such as usertesting.com to do this, and you can literally set your tasks up, like add something to check out, and get screen recordings in half a day and for under $100. If you're not doing this, there's no excuses not to. Number two, performance-based branding. While we often chase immediate ROI for our online campaigns, Mark gave a brilliant example where he set up broadly targeted reach campaigns, but limited to one state. That state didn't see direct conversion, but saw a larger uplift over a longer time frame. A really simple, but potentially game-changing test for your marketing. Number three, the true marketer. I 100% agree with Mark that there should not be a title of digital marketer. It is redundant. Why limit yourself to one set of tools? If you're a marketer, get comfortable with all the tools at your disposal, even if you're naturally better at one or two, which you will be. Pick a channel or two that you're not familiar or comfortable with and just get experimenting. To finish up, I have three resources for you. Firstly, if you're a first-time listener of Add to Cart and you want to stay up to date with new episodes, head over to addtocart.com.au and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. We'll let you know every time a new episode drops, as well as giving you my three takeaways from each episode and a link to the transcripts so you can know that this is an episode that you want to dive straight into. Secondly, if you want a weekly roundup of the best e-commerce case studies, tools, and research, sign up to the High Five Friday newsletter, which is delivered to inboxes at 8 a.m. every Friday morning. I read all the e-commerce news and send you the bits that I think you can take action from. Sign up at 12high12high.com.au forward slash high five. And the last thing, if you are looking to explore your next e-commerce opportunity, head over to esuitetalent.com.au. We are a dedicated e-commerce talent agency connecting the best e-commerce talent with the fastest growing brands. Check it out, sign up to the email and get in touch with me if you want to discuss your next move. Until next time, thanks for listening and keep those customers adding to cart. It's finally happening. Registrations for eSuite's e-commerce accelerator program are now open. If you're looking to get into e-commerce, upskill in e-commerce, or just want a refresher, we've got you covered. I've taken the lessons from my e-commerce career and the insights from all the e-commerce leaders I've been lucky enough to speak with here and distilled it into 10 weeks of e-commerce learning. We cover the foundations of e-commerce, including strategy, marketing, technology, finance, analytics, and supply chain. You'll even leave with an official Shopify certification. Every week, I will host a two-hour live lesson, which will be supported by templates, case studies, and resources to accelerate your e-commerce career. And because you guys lend me your ears, I'll lend you a discount code. Use the code ADTOCART, all one word, how original, to get $200 off your sign-up. That's ADTOCART as the discount code. So don't wait. Class commences on the 14th of March and registration is now open. Head over to learn.esweettalent.com.au. That's learn.esweettalent.com.au to secure your place today. See you in there.